Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is Dr. Francois Furstenberg. He is an associate professor of history at Johns Hopkins University and has taught history at the University of Montreal in the past. He is here today to discuss his newest book, When the United States Spoke French, Five Refugees Who Shaped a Nation. You'll learn about taking a transatlantic approach to U.S. history, the five French refugees who influenced American life, as well as his first book, In the Name of the Father, Washington's Legacy, Slavery, and the Making of a Nation. And now, Drs. Furstenberg and Bradburn. So, Francois, welcome to Mount Vernon. Welcome to the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. Uh, I'm Doug Bradburn, the director here, and I'm here with Francois Furstenberg, professor at Johns Hopkins University. And we're going to talk a little bit about his career, and particularly his brand new book, an exciting new study, When the United States Spoke French, Five Refugees Who Shaped a Nation out with, who's it out with? The Penguin Press, uh, as of uh, this past July. So, uh, Francois, tell, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from, and, and how did you become an academic? Well, um, I grew up in, here in the United States. I grew up in Boston, mostly Boston and Washington, D.C. Um, and I became, uh, you know, I mean, I, I think it wasn't, um, wasn't something that I, thought about or, or had this dream of when I, was, uh, when I was a kid. I mean, mostly once I got to college, I, was, mm. um, I, I became a history major. Those were my favorite classes. And, um, Did you always want to be a writer? Did you think of yourself as someone who wrote a lot? Or? I liked to write, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always liked to write. Um, and, uh, you know, and as I, as, as I, after I, I took a few years off after college um, and, and worked, and it was something that I continued thinking about. Um, so I eventually came back. And, I mean, as you, as you see, the thing, I, you know, one of the things I really like about the career is that, is that it, it's it's very varied. I mean, you, you teach, yeah. you write, you uh, research, you have a lot of time to, to do your own, mm. um, you know, to follow your, pursue your own interests. Mm. Um, and it gives you a tremendous amount of autonomy, uh, which is one of the things I really value. So. Well, it does if you have a tremendous amount of success, which That's you've had for sure. So a PhD from Johns Hopkins, uh, a great university, the first place in America to give a history PhD, I think. I think right. that's right. Uh, and then you started teaching uh, in a foreign climb, as they would say. So, uh, where where did you have your first uh, uh, full time teaching? So, I after I left um, Hopkins, I, I got a job at the University of Montreal, and um, and I started teaching in Canada uh, in French. I mean, it's a francophone university, and that was possible because my mother is French. C'est bon, <laughs> merci. It's <laughs> um, <my laughs> about all I've got. So. <laughs> C'est bien, bravo. <laughs> Um, I'm sorry. You were saying your mother was your mother's French. My mother's French, not from Quebec, but from uh, mm. from France. And so I I grew up speaking French at home. Um, I mean, I grew up here in the U.S. and I grew up um, speaking French at home. And when I was young, I was in a bilingual school, but my um, my French language ed- education ended in the fourth grade. Mm. And after that, I was always in American schools. Uh, so it mm. was 
it was definitely something of a challenge to, to start teaching at a university level, um, really without any of the kind of professional or academic vocabulary that, that I should have had. By How then. did that, uh, and this is just, uh, maybe it didn't have any effect, but did it, did it have any effect on the way you, uh, you write in English in, in academic language? I mean, has it simplified or clarified for you, you know, how you get your points together? And what, what is the impact of that time, kind of learning to do this in French? What was the kind of reverse impact it had on your English communication? I don't know. I mean, I think on the one hand, um, certainly it probably, in a funny way, helped my lecturing in English in the sense that um, lecturing in English never seemed very hard, actually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> lecturing in French was hard, yeah. but lecturing in English seemed like it was a breeze. I mean, I don't even have to practice for this. I mean, I can just, uh, I can just pull it together without looking, uh, having a dictionary, without asking someone for help. Um, and uh, the writing, it's an interesting question. I mean, I never, um, I, I remained, although I, although I lived in a kind of very francophone world, I mean, certainly my professional life was very, was very French-speaking. Um, I think in many ways my intellectual life remained in English. Mm. Um, most of the work that is published in American history is in English. Um, most of my reading continues to be in English. I never never stopped reading, you know, the, the New York Times or whatnot. And, and really, my pleasure reading, um, with not very many exceptions, is is always in English. So I, I don't know. It may have had stylistically a few um, a few. Uh, few effects. I'm not, I'm not really sure. Well, you were a beautiful writer in your first book, and you are in this book as well. So let's talk a little bit about that first book. We are at Mount Vernon, after all, so uh, everyone will remember the name of uh, Francois's first book, which is In the Name of the Father, uh, Washington, Washington. Washington's Legacy and Slavery in the and the Making of a Nation. It's a long subtitle. Long subtitle, but it uh, was very successful. Uh, you were one of the finalists for the George Washington Book Prize, which is an extraordinary achievement because it honors books that make an academic contribution, but also are written in a way that they're accessible to a popular audience. So talk a little bit about the, the thesis of that book and um, how you might reflect on it now, I guess. That book, um, well, that book was not in, in the ways that this one is a, a kind of international exploration of American history. It was a very much of a national exploration, but although in, in funny ways, it, it, it grew out of international questions, I think. Um, I remember the origins of that book was in a paper that I wrote in my first year of graduate school. I was looking at, at the um, American response to the European, well, to the French Revolution of 1848. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. so, and, and that was originally my interest, was to do something transatlantic. I mean, I ended yeah. up not doing that for my first book. I ended up doing it for the second book. Um, Put a but, pin in that. I want to come back to that, because okay. I remember a conversation we had in England a while ago. Anyway, go ahead. Um, and one of the things when I was when I was doing that research, one of the things that um, that I kept running across, which seemed so funny to me, was that people keep invoking George Washington in 1848. Mm. Um, people keep talking about Washington, and there was this phrase that always um, struck me as so um, remarkable: was that people said, I mean, these, the, the revolutions in 1848 were, failed. I mean, they they collapsed, um, as in certain ways the French Revolution did, um, and. Uh, and what people said, what Americans said at the time, was the, the want of the age is a European Washington. Mm. The lack of the age is a European Washington. Yeah. Um, and what, what Europe never had, what France never had, was a George Washington. Um, and people, while the United States was undergoing its own crisis, I mean, this is the beginning um, of the long um, crisis of the Union that's going to end in the Civil War, what, be, what right. people continually um, refer to is George Washington. We need to maintain our nation in Washington's mm. name. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they, this is when the uh, Washington Monument begins to get built in 1848. And, and there's all this talk of Washington. Mount Vernon becomes a kind of sacred site at this point. People begin to raise money in the 1850s for, to, to preserve Mount Vernon. 
And the Mount Vernon and Ladies Association of the Union succeeded in saving George Washington's own. And they did. And, and that was did. that's their full name of the Union is crucial the union. That's, that's to it. And it was crucial to them early on to make sure they weren't just Southern ladies, that they were ladies from across the country. And uh, but anyway, you know that story well. So, but in many ways. Um, this was a response to people's sense that the that the union needed to be saved that that there was something kind of pulling it apart um, and so washington kept um became had become at this point this incredibly powerful symbol mm-hmm. for um for people uh sort of invoking nationalism and yeah. thinking about preserving national unity mm-hmm. and so um so in the dissertation, what I ended up doing was trying to find the origins of that. How did that? Where did that begin? How did that? How did people come to think of Washington as a symbol that could unify the nation? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started with his with his death. I mean, that was where I began. I actually, um, in certain ways, um, I mean, in certain ways, I wasn't that interested in his life at the time. I mean, I just <laughs> I well, was, I mean, was he revered in that way in his life? Uh, it would be the question, I guess, I would pose you, but it's not in the book. So um, he was. He uh, was. I mean, I, I think this reverence uh, began. After the the revolution, yeah. I mean, well, in reti- I mean, one can say first during the revolution, immediately, and then it's probably tarnished a little during his presidency. That's right. That's right. He became a partisan but figure after by death. Him. That so all right. So after death, then what happens? He, uh, well, he, as, as you say, he became somewhat of a partisan figure, in, yeah. in, particularly in the second term of his presidency, and then and then towards the end of his life, he he um, he briefly re-entered politics. Right, flirting with uh, fighting the French. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Um, and so by the time by the end of the 1790s. Um, there are many people in the kind of Jeffersonian Democratic Republican Party who see Washington as a as a partisan figure, as a Federalist, um, and as, and when he dies, this disappears instantly. Instantly, there's an outpouring of um, of grief, of um, of sentiment, of uh, gratitude, reverence, um, almost a, a religious feeling. A lot of bad feeling. poetry. A lot written. of bad poetry. A lot of bad prose. <laughs> uh, first bad in art. first in peace, first in the hearts of his countrymen. That's yep. right. That's a eulogy, um, an elegy. It's uh, it's part of yeah. it's part of um, Henry Lee's. Yeah. He he makes uh, his resolutions that he makes in the Senate, and then it becomes his eulogy. That's right. right. Yeah. And uh, and actually, this is on a side note, but my father told me that um, when he was a kid, people used to say, first in war, first in peace, first in Berg." First in what? First in war, first in peace, first in Berg. Oh, first in Berg. Oh, I like that. Good, uh, Francois. First in Berg. <laughs> Excellent. That is the first uh, pun we had in this conversation. So that's you should ring a bell or something. That's excellent. Good. I always actually thought that was first. kind of interesting because first in war, first in peace. This is not necessarily something that's in the popular culture anymore. It should um, be. But yeah, it should be. Yeah. But but it but it, it was evidently when my dad was growing up in the. In yeah. the, in the what I like to say now that the nationals have won their division, I like to say first in war, first in peace, first in the National League East. <laughs> All right, so, okay, so he dies, he's claimed by both parties, he's the father of the country, uh, and he's a symbol of union. Okay, so, so then what? What, what, what next? Well, um, one of the things that interested me was how did he so quickly become such a unifying symbol? There were, there were a handful of people um, when he died who said, who said um, Washington was a Federalist and we should not venerate him because um, this will advance the Federalist cause. And there were many Federalists who thought that by... Um, pushing Washington by promoting this kind of um, this commemoration of George Washington, they would advance a Federalist cause. Mm-hmm. But um, they were wrong. Yeah. Both of them were wrong. What, in fact, Washington became a kind of super partisan figure almost instantly. Um, and so I was interested in how that happened, mm. um, and largely how that happened, I think, is is because um, Republicans and Federalists were trying to appropriate Washington um, for their cause. Mm. Um, and what what's so interesting about kind of American political culture in this way about Washington's role in American politics in the early 19th century is that everybody thinks they can use Washington for their cause. Mm. Um, so I, I, I became very interested in, in um, 
Washington's status as a slave owner, because this is not something that was hidden from people at the time. I mean, everybody pretty much knew that Washington owned slaves. Um, and so I was interested in how did people talk about that? Um, how did people talk about that and remember that in the 19th century? And, um, and there were diametrical ways of, of thinking about that. There were slave owners who wanted to defend the institution of slavery who would point to Washington and say, right. you see, he was a slave owner. Um, uh, there's nothing wrong with I slave I think owning. you used that uh, picture on your cover, your, maybe one of the covers of your book, where Washington is depicted as sort of the benevolent planter yeah. right amidst yeah, yeah. his... Uh, uh, his happy slaves and That's beautiful right. plantation. Right? There's all kinds yeah. of all kinds of imagery that comes in the, in yeah. the middle of the 19th century showing Washington. Yeah, showing right. this sort of happy relationship, a benevolent institution. Exactly, slavery could be exactly right. showing the bonds of of, uh, of purporting to show the bonds of right. sentimental attachment between his slaves mm -hmm. um, and and Washington. And um, then what about the other side? What did they? How did they deal with that? Abolitionists, instead of saying Washington was a bad person, he was a slave owner, and we shouldn't venerate him, um, they took the opposite tack. They they appropriated him and said Washington, at the end of his life, in his will, he he freed his slaves. He right. declared um, freedom for the for the mm -hmm. slaves that he owned, mm -hmm. and um, this shows that he was um, underneath it all. He was opposed to slavery, and we should all follow his model. Uh, we as a nation. Although we were raised with slavery, although although slavery was something was an institution that we um, so to speak inherited, we um, must follow in Washington's footsteps and abolish the institution. So mm. so instead of rejecting the symbol of Washington, they appropriated him and turned him into a kind of abolitionist symbol. Mm. Um, and Washington, as he was in his political life, um, as he was a, a slave owner, he um, he he was quite. Um, reluctant to speak openly about slavery. Right. Um, he mm -hmm. wrote occasionally in his private correspondence about it, but he, he largely um, retained, remained um, an ambigu ambiguous posture, yeah. which allowed for this kind of multiple and con completely conflicting appropriations. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. he became, he became, he was put, the thing that I love best is that he was put on the currency of the Confederacy right. and of the Union. Right. Um, and these two, these two polities, which are fighting against each other and, and, and slaughtering each other, are doing so both in the name of the same, mm. of the same um, founding father. In the name of the father, a, a fantastic study. You should go out and get it if you haven't read it already. But let's get to the, uh, the main event here. This is the problem with me. I linger too long on ancient history. Um, but uh, this book, you are now a self-described Atlanticist, uh, is what I'm seeing here, and uh, or at least uh, you're, you're enthusiastic about it. I seem to remember a younger version of Francois Furstenberg at a uh, one of Bernard Balin's uh, seminars. This one was held uh, with the Crash uh, Group in, in Cam what was the Cambridge Research in the Social Sciences. Uh, uh, and uh, I remember a, a question posed by Francois Furstenberg to Balin, which was something like, come on, really, what, what is the point of all this Atlantic stuff? Do we really all have to be Atlanticists? Uh, maybe I'm misremembering it, but I seem to remember <laughs> you playing a little bit of the devil's advocate during that uh, final wrap-up, the feel-good wrap-up session when Balin was telling us what it all meant. Am I remembering this wrong? Uh, you, uh, you may be right. I mean, I have thought that. I don't remember saying that to Valen's face. <laughs> it was much more obnoxious back then. Maybe. Um, we all were. I, I still think that. I still think that. I mean, I, you know, I think um, I became interested in this for in this subject for an approach, I guess, for a variety of reasons. Part of them having to do with my my job in Montreal, actually, mm. what we were talking about earlier. Mm. Um, you know, I, I had moved to to Canada. I moved to to a different country. I was 
working, my professional life was increasingly in French. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I thought this, you know, given all the interest in the United States for kind of transatlantic approaches to American history, why not, why not um, uh, use this as a kind of um, advantage? You yes. know, mm-hmm. um, I think also there was so much um, really terrific scholarship coming yeah. out. And this was really the hot field. I mean, this is where the action was. And it felt like, felt like um, this is the most interesting work coming out. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I, you know like it was important to reckon with it. Um, and, um, you know, and I, and I think it's a really interesting approach. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's important, you know, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, uh, we were talking about this uh, earlier, you know, the, how, how important it is to remember the United States, particularly in the 1790s, um, in this moment where it's just incredibly wrapped up. I mean, everything, politics, mm-hmm. culture, the economy, um, is entirely wrapped up with, with Europe and with the Caribbean. I yeah. mean, these are, these are really the poles of, of, of attraction for the United States. So, um, but I, but I still, I still, um, I'll stand by that, that question. I mean, I think there's, there's, there's something about Atlantic history that's always irritated me mm. um, in its uh, sort of triumphalism, yeah. in, its, um, in its kind of sense of su- superiority. I yeah. mean, it's not, instead of, instead of seeing this as just a different approach to thinking about right. the United States or, or, I mean, or whatever, the British colonies or whatever, whatever it is one is interested in, Massachusetts, I mean, it could be anything. Yeah. It could be a, study, a very local study itself. Instead of thinking this is just a, an approach among others that I want right. to take, there's a real sense among many people, I think, that this is, um, this is a better approach. Right. This supersedes yeah. national history. Yeah. Um, and if you're not doing right. it this way, you're doing it wrong. Um, and that, that part, I, I, I sort of dislike that a lot. There is that, sure. uh, that zealot characteristic to some of it, for sure. And I think I uh, absolutely agree with you. Because, you know, history answers questions. And maybe your question can be answered without a transatlantic approach. Or maybe, you know, depends on the way you're framing the, the problem, the historical problem that you're grappling with. Uh, and, and yeah, there is a bit of that triumphalism uh, in there, particularly when some of the studies are really just the old-fashioned imperial history again. They're not actually transatlantic uh, or fluid in the way that sort of the you know the definitions of Atlantic history, which you know in which you decentered power and you know you're moving around the the peripheries and. Uh, in, a, in this hybridity, and you know, mm-hmm. in many cases, people claiming to do Atlantic history, we're just really doing, you know, a new version of, of imperial history. Warmed so, over imperial history. Yeah. So, well, at any rate, it's also a way for you to do diplomatic history without uh, saying that this is old fogey diplomatic history. Here. So, <laughs> so how did um, how did you come across? Uh, so, how did this project kind of evolve from the initial question that you wanted to pursue to you know what what is between covers now? Um. I, I began initially with, um, I sort of stumbled across these guys in some earlier reading when I was, uh, I don't remember what, I think it was this book by, this old book by Duran de Cheveria, I don't know if you've ever mm-hmm. read it, it's a really terrific book, Mirage in the West it's called, it's, uh, yeah, it's yeah. outstanding, mm-hmm. um, but it was published a long time ago, and, um, and, and, you know, I was sort of intrigued, I mean, these are well-known figures in French history, they're not well-known to most Americans except for Talleyrand, I think, right. um, maybe a few military buffs have heard of Noailles because he was. Lafayette's brother-in-law he fought in the revolution. Well, you know, and, and even amongst academic historians, I think of, of say Philadelphia in the 1790s. These guys sort of appear, but they're not really fleshed out. You know, they're yeah. commentators or they're just there, but they're not really placed as actors in any way. You know, right? And and I think what's really going to be important and impactful about this study amongst academics is the, a much better sense of who these 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 characters and their impact uh, was. Yeah, they're, I mean, as you say, they're sort of bit characters in, yeah. in, um, here and there, and so you, you kind of bump into them and you think, oh, what are they doing there? Yeah. And, and then you move on. Um, but um, I think originally my, my interests were kind of focused on, on old questions, actually, on kind of the relationship between the French and the American Revolution. Yeah. 
I, I thought about this originally as a political study, really, mm-hmm. um, as as something that that a might, city of ideas. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, political culture, political ideas. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, these are old questions. You know, what's the relationship between yeah. these two revolutions? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and it it broadened out from there in, in in all kinds of ways. I mean, it became a much bigger book than I meant to write. I meant to write a small, tight. <laughs> this one you do quickly, so you can move exactly. on to the next big exactly. project. Right. And I'm um, still on my little second book. So. <laughs> <laughs> These things balloon on you. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I, I ended up getting into kind of material culture, um, diplo- an awful lot of diplomacy, um, and and the biggest surprise of all, what I was doing the research for this book was was land, land speculation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, at first, I, it, it, it was, was, but it shouldn't be, right? You know. I guess that's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's right. That's right. Um, they they spent enormous amount of time while they were in the United States. These guys um, just. Getting interested in land, speculating in land, investing or trying to invest or failing to invest, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and at first I was basically uninterested in this. I just kept kind of you know ignoring it, uh, but it, but eventually it was just too it was too prominent. It was too recurrent to ignore, mm-hmm. um, and so so I became interested in, in land speculation. And I, and I as as I think you're suggesting, I mean it was um, it's it's the big story of the yeah. of the early republic and it's kind of overlooked in many ways yeah. i think i mean you know well it is it's not really well told it's challenging to tell it well i think too but and it's obviously it's a story that's been going on for much longer than that uh, you know it's not that's right. new in the 1790s right. but um yeah I do, I do think it it does kind of fall i mean obviously the economic history which looks at america in the 19th century is aware of expansion in the west and that sort of thing but the emphasis always is sort of like the, the rise of capitalism or the rise of, uh, you know, industrialism. When where's that going to come from? The spread of cotton. You know, it's not told in the. You know, doesn't incorporate this tremendous enthusiasm for land speculation in the same way. Yeah. As it might do. But at any rate, all right, it's hard, to... as you're saying. I mean, it's yeah. really hard to reconstruct that. You know, and many historians have have attacked yeah. it and and, and yeah. I think um, fallen. I mean, it, absolutely. I just read. Um, we read for a graduate class Alan Taylor's uh, William Cooperstown, yeah, and he does a, he does a magisterial job. Yeah. And early on, I mean, he reconstructs the way that this happened. And I read that section very carefully, and I can barely follow, even though even though Alan Taylor um, yeah. figured it out, he pieced it together. But and how he did that, I don't know, because mm. it's one of the hardest things I think a historian can do. Fantastic uh, study. All right, so back to your study. Uh, United States spoke French. Five refugees who shaped a nation. Francois Furstenberg. <laughs> Uh, give people the gist here. So we talked about it earlier, but this audience hasn't heard any of that. So what uh, what is the book about? So I, I look at um, a group of five Frenchmen who who left France during the French Revolution. These are all um, elite figures, as as we were um, talking about earlier. These are all big figures in French history. Mm-hmm. Um, these are aristocrats who are descended from the noblest of French families, um, from the highest reaches of the aristocracy. Mm-hmm. And they were liberals. They were in Lafayette's mold. In fact, Noailles is Lafayette's brother-in-law. They, um, they he must be his age too, right? I mean, he's yeah, so young. Yeah. They, They're pretty close in age. They so. are close in yeah. age, yeah. Um, and um, and and so they, you know, they admired the, the United States when they, they had been supporters of the American Revolution when it broke out. They were they were admirers of the British um, system of government, the British uh, Constitution, a, a constitutional monarchy, and um, and when when um, the States General were called. They saw this as a moment to um, to bring the British model um, to France, basically, and to install a French a constitutional monarchy in France and to write a constitution for France. This was a kind of enlightenment project, um, and they jumped on board and they led that early project. Um, Noailles, in fact, presided over the over the Constituent Assembly when 
when feudalism was formally abolished, when the feudal regime was, was, was pulled down. Let me pause there real quick, just to question. Were they uh, confident that they would be able to kind of master the flow of events, or were they worried from the start that things could get out of hand, or was that not even in their mind uh, in that the heady days after the Bastille fell? I think they were confident. I mean, I think um, I think that they saw this new world opening up before them, and that, and that it was um, that that this this was um, bigger than them. This was a moment of history that was beginning a new era, um, and I think it, it seemed as though the time had arrived. I think, and um, and and of course it, it hadn't. I mean, they, the history sort of passed them by, so to speak. I mean, it went they um, they couldn't control it. I mean, they they unleashed events, or they helped to unleash events. Um, I mean, it, nothing was in their power in the first place, but they helped to unleash events that um, that that quickly moved beyond their ability to control, and and so they had to flee. Yeah, you use a nice phrase in the book. That, you know, it's a phrase that uh, uh, familiar with the people that, that the center could not hold. Yeah, and that they and these guys are basically standing in the center. They were, they were, and, they, and uh, you could either go one one direction or the other, and, and they had nowhere to stand. They were um, aristocrats, and they were they sat on the left of the National Assembly. I mean, this is, you know, this is where we get our terms left and right is from the French Revolution. They sat on the left side of the of the National Assembly, and um, on the right were um, their, um, in some cases, I suppose, their family, um, people like them. You know, aristocrats. They were viewed as traitors to their to their class, um, and especially to the early aristocrats who fled France, who, who became the first emigres. Um, but they were distrusted by the the left. They were distrusted by the Girondins, by the radicals, um, and of course by the Montagne. Um, so they yeah. they had no natural home really, um, and and when and when they um, when the French Revolution got more radical, when the terror when the, the September massacres arrived, the terror began. They they fled, mm -hmm. um, they fled to to England and then to the United States. It's interesting that some, they ended up in Philadelphia. I guess it makes sense in some ways that might be their natural home amongst the wealthy elite of Philadelphia who were trying to recreate France inside their inside their uh, their great rooms and their salons and. Uh, and wanted to be aristocrats, but uh, couldn't quite. So they, the liberal aristocrats of France might have felt at home there. That's right. They were uh, very much at home, I think, among these kind of federal federalist grandees. Um, I mean, there's a term that historians used, they used to use in the 19th century, and, and, and um, that's come back in vogue in the last uh, little while, is the, this idea of the Republican court. Yeah. Um, this very paradoxical Rufus idea. Rufus Griswold, that's the right. original Republican court antiquarian. Yes. That's right. Go ahead. Talk um, about it. So... So there was this 19th century historiography that took this very seriously, that was very interested, and I, and, and, um, and I found that actually incredibly useful for reconstructing some of these social dynamics at work. Yeah, that um, stuff, that antiquarian stuff is great because it's so biographical. The Rufus Griswold book in particular is 21 chapters on women, I think, almost all women, right, yeah. who are major players in this world. Yeah, yeah. and this, um, this meshed very well with the historiography that was emerging in the, in the late 20th century on... Um, on salons, uh, largely coming out of France, um, Dina Goodman um, in particular, coming out of France and see, um, reconstructing the, the, the world of these salons and showing how women were um, important political uh, actors in, through the, these forms of, of kind of informal politics. Um, I mean, this, this scholarship has been challenged on the French side, um, but at the time, Americans found this, I mean, American historians found this uh, very valuable. And so, so it, it gelled very well with this much older scholarship on on the 19th century, from the 19th century, like Rufus Griswold in particular, um, who had recognized the important role that women um, had played in the social and in the political life of Philadelphia in the 1790s. Um, and so these, these guys from France, they fit right into that, and they help us, I think they help us um, mm. understand the ways that this Republican court functioned in this period. This is kind of this, 
1790 is really this transitional moment, right? Yeah. The Constitution now exists, yeah. but nobody knows what kind of political culture is going um, to emerge out of this. Yeah, and, it's, well, uh, and court culture still matters, right? Because this is politics that's face-to-face and that's personal, and the parties are still sort of incohate. Um, you know, and it's, it's part of the public sphere, but different. it's a different kind of performing space. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a really nice way to get at that, the multi-levels of politics there. So these guys are there, and um, what, what struck me about the book, I haven't had a chance to read it entirely yet, but um, you have these guys going all over the place. So I thought initially when I read this, it was going to be about a kind of thick study of Philadelphia's life. These guys are there and what they're up to. But they're, going, they're all over North America. I mean, you know, they're, they're in the back country. They're in Maine. Uh, what, what are they doing? What are they up to? Mostly they're, they're looking for land. They're looking to, for land to invest, to, to, to buy and so they go all over, um, mostly the northern back country. So they go Maine, uh, New York, the, um, all these areas of intense speculation in the 1790s. Uh, the Ohio Valley is a major site for them. They mostly stay out of the south. I mean, Eon Cool, one of them travels, is, he travels to Charleston. Um, but, he um, comes to loathe Philadelphia. Yes, yes, he gets very tired of it. Um, and he, I mean, Philadelphia is where, the, where his friends are, it's where um, the, the most refined kind of social life is in, in this period. But... But he um, he feels kind of imprisoned there. I mean, they all feel sort of yeah. imprisoned. I mean, they've been yeah. exiled, and they all want to go back to France. He seems particularly restless. You make a connection with him uh, to um, uh, to uh, Tocqueville. Uh, Tocqueville, yeah, uh, the Tocqueville, you, which I thought was really interesting. The little bit of it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you've read this. I read that part of it. No, yeah. well, I haven't. I haven't done it cover to cover. But uh, that struck me as very interesting. Talk a little bit about it. That. Uh, yeah, they, I think they're actually quite similar figures in many ways. Um, I mean. Leon, Leon Cole seems like a precursor to, to Tocqueville. I mean, both of them were descendants from these um, very old noble families. Mm. Both of them had fled France um, and came to the United States. Um, they fled political instability in France and came to the United States um, to find refuge, political refuge. And um, both of them were reformers. Um, they both studied prisons in Philadelphia. I mean, that was actually the, ostensibly mm. the, the reason that Tocqueville came over. Um, yeah. And they, they were looking at these kind of liberal models of incarceration. Mm. I mean... Leon Cool wrote too much, frankly. Um, he, he, Tocqueville was, um, I think, has a more powerful mind. I mean, a more powerful intellect, mm. and he spent more time um, refining his words and 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 coming up with a really much more powerful study. Leon Cool mm. just kind of blurts it all out there and then publishes it. Um, yeah, it's almost like a travel diary mm. more than anything mm. else. But he's um, mixed in there. Mixed in there are some really interesting observations, actually, yeah. about, about American life. So let's talk about uh, Talleyrand. Uh, uh, what what? What what about him is so interesting in this story? Well, he's um, he's certainly the most influential figure. He's really the only, I guess, what one would call world historical figure who who um, comes comes to the United States from France in this period, and um, and he spends he spends time. I mean, he's got a very powerful mind and, and um, incredible powers of observation, and he he sees a lot about the United States. He sees a lot about its economy, about its diplomacy. Mm-hmm. Um, he and Alexander Hamilton become. Very good friends. In fact, he later says that um, that of the there are three great men. I think he says that he met in his life, um, and Hamilton was one of them. Fox and I guess Napoleon are the other. Yeah, Fox and Napoleon. That's right. And why, um, why did he love Hamilton so much? What 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 was it? Uh, they had a lot in common, really. They they both um, they both were were um, big thinkers in terms of the relationship between economy and politics. Mm-hmm. Um, they both had, I think. Um, what one now would call sort of realist takes on international relations. They both um, they both flaunted the sexual um, manners of their times. Mm. Um, 
and um, they they must have seen a lot of each other, yeah. a lot of each of themselves. Well, they both knew they were great men too, right? And they liked to. I don't be think they them. had much doubt that they were. <laughs> yes, yeah. it's, it's, it's interesting, and appealing in its way. So, uh, when you think about this book and and the impact you wanted to have um, amongst, say, the general public, what that's one question. And then, what about the academic world? What, what do you hope? Is the you know is the impact that this book has? I mean, you know, I think what your question is. Um, yeah, I mean, what you know, it's hard. What I what I try to I don't do want to here, make it too grand. I mean, no, I just no. Sort of like, I mean, I think what I'm trying to do is yeah. to speak to both audiences, right? Yeah. I mean, as you, as yeah. you um, are saying, and um, it's you know, it's not on the one hand you want to tell a good story, right? Um, on the other hand, and make it accessible, which I think it very much does. I mean, it's really narratively driven. And uh, and beautifully written in that way. So I think it, I think people will eat it up. But on the other hand, you know, I mean, I do want to speak to scholars, and yeah. um, I mean, that is well, in, it's in extensively sense the primary footnoted, which yeah. I, I, you know, which is unusual for a trade press, I think, to have the, the size of your footnote. So there is an it, penguin. It's a disciplined nice scholarly that. study. Yeah. yeah, they don't they they didn't give me any grief about that. Um, yeah, that's great. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, the primary audience really is is um, other academics. Um, and I think, I mean, part of what I want to do is, um, I guess, well, par partly it's um, to to speak to this scholarship, which I think is so interesting and powerful on mm -hmm. on the Atlantic world. Um, thinking about about connections between the United States, in particular, United States and the French Atlantic. Um, I mean, you know, a lot of people work on the Atlantic world. The French Atlantic, perhaps less so. There's a lot of people interested in the in the Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, yes. and this became yeah. a big part of this of this story because it, it sort of became clear to me quickly that there is no there's no Franco-American relationship without that doesn't run through the Caribbean in some yeah. way. In fact, it doesn't run through Great Britain also in, in many ways. Um, so so it's a, it's really a story. I mean, a story what 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 originally was a, was about France and the United States is sort of about um, France, yeah. Britain, and the Caribbean and the United yeah. States. I mean, because yeah. that's in, that's sort of you can't disentangle those things. Yeah. I think. Um, there's a, I mean, I think there's a kind of methodological ambition. I mean, I, I, I wanted to do yeah. what you were saying early, you know, do this really dense, um, textured study, uh, local study kind of of Philadelphia and of these, of these characters in Philadelphia um, and of the kind of sociability and of the material world of Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, and then I also um, work on these other levels as well on the, on the kind of economic um, capital flows on a kind of yeah. big, yeah, big that's, uh, di that's absolutely right. Yeah, the net and networks as well. You're interested networks. in sort of social networks and uh, correspondence and the right. way that these relationships work and how people move. So it's a really great way to get at the texture, I think, of of that 18th century moment. Uh, you know that. So that's in there as well. So yeah, I think it's a it's a remarkable study in that regard. Uh, one of the questions I want to ask everybody that I interview who come here is, who is your favorite founder? <laughs> um, it all depends on what you mean by favorite, I guess. I don't know. Uh, I mean, it's I've up to certainly you. spent the most time studying uh, Washington and thinking about Washington. Well, I will, I we mean, don't I feel like I know him pretty that. well. Yeah, but you, you have. Who so would I have? You have uh, authority to say that, I guess. I suppose Jefferson might have made the most um, interesting dinner companion. I, yeah. I kind of I, I dislike Jefferson in a lot of ways. I mean, yeah. I think uh, he's my he's in many ways my least favorite, I guess. Yeah. Um, I think uh, I think Hamilton maybe and I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, yeah. it depends on. It, I guess it depends on the mood. Yeah, what the Franklin. What the mood Franklin. Franklin. Well, there be. you go, Franklin. Franklin yeah. is the one. Well, so in this library we have um, we have busts of, and I'll take you in there. You haven't seen it yet, but uh, we have busts of Franklin, Hamilton, and then the first four presidents. We have Washington, Adams, Jefferson, and Madison. So, you know, the the uh, a circle of notables. Um, 
certainly, you know, the founders. Uh, who would you add? Who's bust-worthy that's not up there? Man, woman, child? From this period? Yeah, a, a bust that should be in a, a, a great room which is representing the founding. That's a tough one. Well, you can I mean, think about it. I think... Um, I think in, in many, you know, my, my kind of hero or the, of the 19th century really is Frederick Douglass. I mean, he's not at the same period, um, but he speaks powerfully, I think. And I mean, he, he, was a, he was a kind of big figure in my first book. Yeah. Um, maybe not, I mean, I don't know how, how much he, I'd have to look at the index, but, um, but as a kind of like counter theorist, I suppose. Um, something like, I mean, I, I guess you want to see Frederick Douglass and, and bust along there. And, yeah. I mean, it's kind of an obvious answer in certain ways, but. Well, I don't think it's obvious at all. It was A, outside of the era, and B, uh, not what I was expecting. So it's a perfect answer in that regard. <laughs> and you might end up being the outlier if this becomes a common question that I ask people. So, um, well, wonderful. Uh, congratulations on the new book. Uh, I mean, I know how hard it is to get a second book out, and uh, just so impressed and delighted for you, and uh, I wish you all success with it. Thanks a lot, Doug. It was great to talk to you about this. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.